a clever Linux malware distribution scheme, a new vulnerability in all major GPUs, a couple Proton vulnerabilities, as well as other email providers, not just Proton, lots of new passkey support, and more. Welcome to Surveillance Support 151, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past three weeks. So there's going to be a lot uh, this week. We're going to try to go through it as much as possible. Uh, there's going to be a lot of check the show notes for more information comments today. Um, definitely apologies on both of our ends, mainly on my end. Uh, Nate actually did record uh, SR151, and then on my end, I screwed up and didn't get everything published on time. And by the time I was traveling, and by the time I could finally figure out to get it published, and Nate was like, it's just not worth publishing it at this point. Some of you still saw it unlisted in the playlist, so uh, good for you who found it. All right, and I'm gonna do my best. Uh, I'm pretty much through it, but I caught COVID uh, coming back from the trip, so uh, this last week's been a little rough, so I'm gonna do my best to get through it today. I'm Henry from Techlore. I'm Nate from The New Oil. I didn't do nothing on my trip. I did set up a news email uh, for you all, so you guys can email news at surveillancereport.tech to send us stories, because I get random emails in my like personal inbox for some reason, like my normal like website email you guys I, email that for some reason i get them at the new oil every now and then you. too yeah right and and so now we have like a whole new established place so everyone knows where to go um so we appreciate those tips and now there's a central place for those if you don't know what that url looks like or you don't want to type it out just go to our website surveillance support.tech and there's a link there that says like send us tips and it'll just open in your email client nate has a <laughs> thing um i just wanted to say on the uh the q a not last week, but last time. Thank you for, I, I talked about Apple Music and iTunes and stuff, and a couple of you guys said there's an Apple Music preview for Windows. I just wanted to say thanks for letting me know about that, because God, it's technically it's a beta, but holy crap, it's so much better than iTunes. iTunes is garbage. So thank you for making my music experience a little better. Okay, so our highlight story this week says free download manager site redirected Linux users to malware for years. So this came from Kaspersky, who said that the official download page for freedownloadmanager.org would sometimes redirect those attempting to download the Linux version to a malicious domain at deb.fdmpkg.org, which hosted a malicious Debian package. Uh, due to this redirection only happening in some cases and not all instances, it is hypothesized that scripts targeted users with malicious downloads based on specific but unknown criteria. Kaspersky observed various posts on social media, such as Reddit, Stack Overflow, YouTube, and Unix Stack Exchange, where the malicious domain was disseminated as a reliable source. So, you know, sometimes YouTubers will leave, like, the download link in the comments. Um, this is why we we direct you to the actual website uh, for a lot of reasons. We're not, we will never put like, click here to go straight to the download. Like it might take you to the download page, but not the actual file itself for a lot of reasons. Furthermore, a post on the official free download manager website in 2021 illustrates how an infected user points out the malicious or, uh, domain and was told it is not affiliated with the official project. Free download manager has told Bleeping Computer it is actively working on fixing the issue and has also released a statement for the community. So um, yeah, the reason it went undetected is because like they said, it was only, certain criteria would trip it. So for one, I'm assuming you had to be a Debian user. It's unclear if it was all Debian users or certain Debian users. So we don't know if they were like targeting a specific people or groups of people, or if it was just, again, like just Debian users. But yeah, that's kind of what made it so hard to catch was because it was just, you know, it wouldn't happen to everybody. You know, the whole works on my machine. I might go there and it might work fine. You might go there and it might not. Um, pretty crazy stuff. Just because you're on Linux, doesn't mean you're completely private or completely secure. Just remember that. I think that's a very common sentiment that people have. I'm on Linux, so I'm fine. And it's like, eh. Um, it's one important part of an entire picture. All right, data breaches. We're gonna go through these ASAP. 
Caesars Entertainment says customer data was stolen in a cyber attack. Uh, these attackers stole a copy of the company's loyalty program database, which includes driver's license numbers and social security numbers for a significant number of members. Caesars said that other data was stolen in the attack, but did not necessarily say what. It's not clear how many people were affected, but they have taken steps to ensure that the stolen data is deleted by the unauthorized actor, although they cannot guarantee this result. So... <laughs> they're doing uh, who knows what, uh, but they said this in the filing, implying that the company had paid a ransom as reported. The Wall Street Journal reported they paid about $15 million and the original demand was $30 million. Uh, the Associated Press is warning that an AP Stylebook data breach led to phishing attacks. So AP Stylebook is a commonly used guide on grammar, punctuation, and writing for journalists, magazines, and newsrooms worldwide. Uh, basically, AP Stylebook had an old website and then like move to a new one or something. And for some reason, they never took down the old one. So the stolen information includes customer's name, email address, street address, city, state, zip code, uh, zip code, phone number, and user ID. For customers who entered a tax exempt ID, such as social security number or employer identification number, those were stolen as well. Uh, they have since taken the site offline. Again, not sure why they didn't do that to begin with. A bug tracking company, Rollbar, has disclosed a data breach after hackers stole access tokens. This was back in early August, and while inside Rollbar's servers, they accessed sensitive customer information, including usernames and email addresses, account names and project information, such as environment names and service link configuration. They did not specify how many people were affected, but the article says Rollbar says it's error logging and tracking services are being used by 400 million plus application end users and thousands of companies worldwide, such as Salesforce, Twilio, Uber, Twitch, and Pizza Hut. Our next data breach comes from the Manchester police officers whose data was exposed in a ransomware attack. The impacted organization, so this was a third party organization. Uh, they were not named in the statement, but they are a supplier for the GMP and other organizations across the UK. At this point, uh, well, at the time I took these notes, uh, it's not believed this data included financial information. However, they didn't provide details on what was included at the time, so. Um, still not good. Pizza Hut Australia warns 193,000 customers of a data breach. This includes full names, delivery addresses, delivery instructions, email addresses, phone numbers, masked credit card data, and encrypted passwords for online accounts. And now I want pizza. Microsoft AI researchers accidentally exposed terabytes of internal sensitive data. So this was basically an exposed GitHub repo. I mean, basically it was an exposed GitHub repo. The data includes 38 terabytes of sensitive information, including personal backups of two employees' personal computers. Um, why is that in your company GitHub? That's so weird. Also contained other sensitive personal data, including passwords to Microsoft services, secret keys, and more than 30,000 internal Teams messages from hundreds of Microsoft employees. The URL, which had, been which had exposed this data since 2020, was also misconfigured to allow full control rather than read-only permissions. Um, since this was brought to their attention, Microsoft has revoked the SAS token. They said that no customer data was exposed or other internal systems jeopardized, and said that as a result of this, they were able to actually improve their secret scanning service on GitHub. So... I guess that's, you know, the silver lining there. All right, there are three major credit bureaus in the US and one of them is TransUnion who denies that it was hacked and instead links leaked data to third party. Uh, so the investigation into the claims found that the information leaked by the USDOD was likely obtained from another organization system given that the data and its formatting are different than TransUnion's. Quick correction, the database USDOD is apparently the username of the the person who leaked this data. Uh, the database allegedly stolen from TransUnion's systems include a wide range of sensitive information of roughly 59,000 people worldwide. So, 
yeah, not good. And you know what? Uh, with how data sharing works with the whole credit system in general, I feel like there's always the option to just blame someone else. But we'll keep going with the whole blame game because now T-Mobile is denying new data breach rumors and points to an authorized reseller. Contains sales data slash analytics, support calls with customers, employee credentials, partial SSNs, email addresses, and customer data. Um, that's all the details that were in the article. And yeah, the headline pretty much says the rest. It was a, you know, one of those authorized resellers that they're like, no, it came from them, not us. Air Canada has disclosed a data breach of employee and certain records. Uh, this is the flag carrier in the largest airline of Canada, and they've disclosed this incident this week in which hackers briefly obtained limited access to its internal systems. It's like all you need is brief access to it. Um, but that's pretty much all they know. Air Canada has a breach of 20,000 mobile app users in 2018 as well. So this is their next big uh, incident. Hopefully we get more information. The National Student Clearinghouse had a data breach that impacted 890 schools. This was a result of the Move It breach. We're still hearing about that, what, almost six months later? Um, this includes names, dates of birth, contact information, social security numbers, student ID numbers, and some school-related records, such as enrollment records, degree records, and course-level data. According to the filing, this affected over 51,500 uh, people. Like, I'm assuming they mean students and staff, so... Um, very unfortunate, and Move It is still going. A decade of newborn child registry data was stolen in another Move It mass hack. Uh, this was from Ontario's government-funded birth registry, uh, which has confirmed this data breach affecting some 3.4 million people who sought pregnancy care, including the personal health data of close to 2 million newborns and children across the Canadian province. Great start. Uh, this covers January 2010 through May 2023. It includes names, date of births, address with postal co codes, and health card numbers. It also includes dates of care and service, lab test results, pregnancy risk factors, types of birth, procedures, and pregnancy birth outcomes, and associated care. Okay, and our last one is a little bit different. Real quick one. SSH keys stolen by stream of malicious PyPy and NPM packages. A stream of malicious packages have been found stealing a wide variety of sensitive data from software developers on platforms. The campaign started December, uh, September 12th, 2023, and analysts have unearthed 14 malicious packages on NPM. After a brief operational hiatus on September 16th and 17th, the attack has resumed and expanded to the PyPy ecosystem. Since the start of the campaign, the attackers have uploaded 45 packages total, 40 on NPM and 5 on PyPy, with variants in the code indicating a rapid evolution in the attack. So this is still ongoing. Um, be very, very careful. It actually specifically points out that some of these uh, packages are using typo squatting. So basically, if you type the, the repo in wrong, you pull this malicious one instead of like the actual one. So always be really careful what you're, you're, um, you're using and downloading. All right, and now we're gonna go into the companies and we're gonna start with iOS 17, which includes new security and privacy features. Starting with lockdown mode, uh, this has now been added to Apple Watch, which is really cool. Uh, it also strips geolocation data from photos. So uh, that's nice for me because previously when I have to share photos with people, uh, not through Signal, I still send a message to myself on Signal using note to self, download a copy of the photo, and then send it out from there to strip geolocation data. So now you don't have to do stuff like that. Uh, it stops automatically rejoining insecure networks, and also it blocks 2G cell connections outright. Uh, I have locked down on an iOS device and I was able to check that out, and there is a way to override that, and we'll talk about that more soon. Um, now also in Safari, it now strips tracking links and locks private browsing tabs behind biometrics. You can also share pass keys with other Apple Keychain users. There's a new check-in feature that lets loved ones know if you didn't arrive at your destination in the expected time. 
which is opt-in. And there's also live transcription, which is basically call screening as well. Okay, and uh, so on the topic of the whole blocking 2G cell things, this comes from EFF. It says, Apple and Google are introducing new ways to defeat cell site simulators, but is it enough? Um, I'm gonna quote, it's a couple of paragraphs here, but it they got the point across really well. So in 2021, Google released an optional feature for Android to turn off the ability to connect to 2G cell sites. We applauded this feature at the time, but we also suggested that other companies could do more to protect against cell site simulators, especially Apple and Samsung who had not made similar changes. This year, improvements are being made. Earlier this year, Google announced another new mobile security feature setting for Android. This new setting allows users to prevent their phone from using a null cipher when making a connection with a cell tower. In a well-configured network, every connection with a cell tower is authentic authenticated and encrypted using a symmetric cipher with a cryptographic key generated by the phone's SIM card and the tower it is connecting to. Null ciphers are useful for tasks like network testing where an engineer might need to see the content of the packages going over the wire. Null ciphers are also critical for emergency calls where connectivity is the number one priority even if someone doesn't have a SIM card. Unfortunately, fake base stations, such as Stingrays, can also take advantage of null ciphers to intercept traffic from phones, such as SMS messages calls and non-encrypted internet traffic. By turning on this new setting, users can prevent their connection to cell towers from using a null cipher except in the case of emergency services if necessary, thus ensuring that their connection to the cell tower is always encrypted. Unfortunately, the setting has not been released yet, and they said vanilla Android, and I wonder what they mean by that, but they said, has not yet been released in vanilla Android and will only be available on newer phones running 14 or higher, but we hope that third-party manufacturers, especially those who make lower-cost phones, will bring this change to their phones as well. Apple announced that in iOS 17, iPhones will not connect to insecure 2G mobile towers if they are placed in lockdown mode, and so far, Samsung has not taken any steps to include the 2G toggle from vanilla Android, nor has it indicated that it plans to anytime soon. Which, you know, y'all know we're pretty anti-Samsung around here for the most part, or at least I am. I can't speak for Henry, but... Oh, you can speak for Henry. Okay. WhatsApp has reluctantly started working on cross-platform messaging due to EU regulations. So the European Union named the six big tech companies that should be considered as gatekeepers in one way or another under the DMA. And just a few days later, as... WA Beta Info first reported, a new beta version of WhatsApp features a new screen called Third Party Chats. This represents the first example of the new EU regulatory framework. The new screen appears in a development version of the Android app for the popular messaging service. Right now, there's nothing to see, but the idea is WhatsApp will let you open a dedicated menu to see incoming messages from people who are using other messaging apps. The article then goes on to explain how the EU is attempting to break up gatekeepers and monopolies. It's going to be interesting to see how Meta chooses to implement interoperability in WhatsApp when it comes to advanced features such as file sharing, video calls, and audio messages. End-to-end encryption will have to work with third-party services too. In other words, this is just the groundbreaking ceremony of a technically important project for the WhatsApp team. So yeah, this is something that the EU is trying to address, not just with Meta and WhatsApp, but other messengers as well, like iMessage. So it's going to be really interesting in, in the next few years if we see some of these messengers be able to communicate with one another. Um, I think that would be really, as long as it's done securely, I don't have an inherent issue with it. And I think that this could be something really interesting. Let's talk about Windows and passkeys for a moment. Windows 11 has gained passkey support for managing passkeys. Uh, once, well, it's coming soon. Uh, once the expanded passkey support rolls out, Windows 11 users will be able to create a passkey using Windows Hello. Uh, they'll then be able to use that passkey to access supported webs, uh, 
supported webs or apps, interesting choice of word, using their face, fingerprint, or PIN, Windows 11 passkeys can be managed on the devices on which they're stored or saved to a mobile phone for added convenience. Microsoft began rolling out support for passkey management several months ago in the dev channel, but this marks the capability's general availability. And the article did not state a specific timeline, but I'm assuming probably end of the year at the latest. Uh, sounds like they're getting ready to roll it out, maybe even in the next update, uh, who knows, but... Yeah, so passkeys are coming to Windows. I'm assuming since they mentioned like being able to put it on a mobile phone, I'm hoping you'll be able to, if you're already using passkeys, hopefully you can like import them to Windows and you know not have to create a whole new one and manage multiple passkeys and stuff. And on that note, uh, GitHub is also adding passkey support for all their users, so it's kind of the same thing. I don't wanna repeat the same thing twice, but that article is in the show notes if you wanna learn more about that and how to enable that. Meta's new AI assistant was trained on public Facebook and Instagram posts. Uh, this was to train parts of their new AI virtual assistant. Uh, they excluded private posts shared only with family and friends in an effort to respect consumers' privacy. Uh, Meta also did not use private chats on its messaging services as training data for the model and took steps to filter private details from public data sets used for training. The public Facebook and Instagram posts that were used to train Meta AI included both text and photos. Uh, the president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, said Meta imposed safety restrictions on what content the Meta, the Meta AI tool could generate, like a ban on the creation of photorealistic images of public figures. So um, I don't know how to interpret this. I think the bar is so low for Meta that this actually read like positive news. <laughs> I'm with you, actually. But, I was like, it's... wow, they actually excluded private posts. Good for them. Right. And they... <laughs> went through the data sets and took out private details from the data sets used for training. So like good, good job meta for their standards, but still concerning uh, all things considered uh, that, you know, just remember when you're on a closed platform and they can do whatever they want with the data. This next one is kind of interesting. Uh, it says your wise webcam might've let other owners peek into your house. So some security camera owners reported on Friday, this is a couple Fridays ago, this was one of our older stories, that they were unexpectedly able to see uh, webcam feeds that weren't theirs, meaning that they were unintentionally able to see inside other people's houses. A wise spokesperson tells The Verge that this was due to a web caching issue. Weird. Um, so this, this author pointed out they found several Reddit threads, and they said each thread has comments from other users pointing to similar issues. Uh, shockingly, I even saw some instances of people claiming they saw the same cameras that other people did. So like when you take that multiple threads with multiple comments, this seems to have affected a pretty, pretty good number of people. Uh, Wise claimed to have fixed the issue, which they claim was only present for about 30 minutes, but the article points out that earlier this year, Wise had another vulnerability that they refused to acknowledge and instead quietly discontinued that model of cameras. Point being just, you know, take all their stuff with a grain of salt, because obviously they have a history of downplaying any issues. Samsung, our favorite company, is putting AI chips in all its home appliances in 2024. Uh, this is to equip all its new home appliances with neural processing units. The plans encompass uh, both premium and mainstream appliances in product categories like smart TVs, dishwashers, ovens, refrigerators, and air conditioners, because these things are not bloated enough. Uh, some of the specific tasks the AI built into your home appliance may be able to leverage include serving you ads. No, uh, that, I made that one up. But it's uh, on-device AI processing to implement voice recognition, machine vision, and fully enabling of the Bixby Assistant, which everyone loves. Uh, every Samsung user... No, that was my note about <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you wrote a fun note here. Every Samsung user that uh, Nate's ever met absolutely loved Bixby and thought it was the greatest idea ever. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure even our Samsung you, defenders will be like, nah, you guys are right about that one. Bixby was trash. I've never met anyone who right. liked Bixby. 
I actually don't understand Samsung. Like, I don't understand Samsung lovers. Uh, I, like, like I, I used a Samsung phone for like 10 minutes and I wanted to just like tear all my hair out. Just because like everything was so needlessly complicated. It's not, let me, let me make this clear. I'm not like the smartest tech person in the world, but I'm pretty tech savvy compared to the average person. It's not that I can't figure it out. It's just, I understand it well enough to see, wow, that is very poorly done. And that's just needlessly complicated for no good reason. It's bad design. It's poorly implemented. It's bloated. It's not privacy respecting. It doesn't need to exist on top of Google's ecosystem that's there anyway. It's, uh, leave it there. I recently, I, I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, but I, about a year ago or so, I got my wife to move from Samsung to a Pixel. And I mean, to, to her defense, she went from like Android 9 or 10 to like Android 12 or 13. So there was that, but also like, and she was kind of hesitant and she straight up admitted, she was like, it was brand loyalty. It was familiarity. I've just, I've had a Samsung for so long. It's what I'm used to. But once she got settled into the Pixel to this day, she's like, oh my God, it's so much better. I'm so happy with the Pixel. So yeah, I'm with you. All right, with that, we'll move into research. We're gonna start off with a code vulnerability that put ProtonMail at risk. Um, so this actually covered Skiff and Tutanota as well, and we'll talk about that, but we'll start with Proton. So this comes from Sonar Research, who discovered a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the open source code of ProtonMail. The issue allowed attackers to steal decrypted emails and impersonate their victims, bypassing the end-to-end -end encryption. Attackers had to send two emails, both of which had to be viewed by the victim. In some scenarios, the attack would succeed if the victim only viewed the emails, but most scenarios required them to click on a link in the second email. Sonar Research responsibly disclosed this vulnerability to the vendor in June 2022, and they were fixed shortly after. So this is just it's kind of like the, you know, okay, now let's talk about it and see what we found. They also share how Proton fixed the bug so that other developers can copy that fix. It took them just over a month from the initial report to the public release. If you're interested in learning more about the under the hood stuff, I think it was a very technical article, but it wasn't like super, super over my head. I was able to kind of make sense of it just by going slow. And then towards the end, they said, as part of a three-part series, we will cover other severe vulnerabilities we found in Skiff and Tutanota desktop in the coming weeks. So both of those have been released. Uh, all of them have been fixed. Um, so Skiff's vulnerability was very similar to Proton's. They basically just took two different ways to solve it. Tutanota was specifically related to the desktop app, and it has also been fixed. And, you know, the article's in the show notes, so you can definitely go find those and, and read the details for yourself if you're interested. Well, on a similar note, uh, Proton Pass uh, has a security flaw that was exposed, and it's actually a similar one that they've had in the past reintroduced uh, that affected specifically Firefox users. So if someone had access to a victim's computer, they could retrieve all the items stored on Proton Pass, uh, even if uh, it was locked. Uh, this issue was noted in their recent audit, uh, and pretty much the password and other items of a given ProtonPass extension are not cleared from memory immediately after the user locks the application. This means that the attacker with physical access to the victim's computer can retrieve the victim's saved items, even if the extension is locked. Notably, the locking mechanism only takes effect on the server side while no previous data is cleared from memory. The issue did seem to be fixed, but some new features have apparently reintroduced it. This is why, I mean, this is a previous issue that's now been reintroduced for Firefox only. Proton claimed it to be from the process of pushing out an update and new features. At the time of this recording, we don't believe that the update has been pushed since the last release uh, on the Mozilla store predates this article's publication date. So uh, we're a little bit unsure if that fixes out or not. Either way, I think the severity of this is pretty low given someone would need to have either 
like root access to your machine, admin access to your machine, or they'd have to physically have access to your machine. Uh, so yeah, but still, you know, something to keep on your radar and something that I hope gets fixed ASAP if it's not already fixed. Okay, this next one is pretty interesting. It's a wiki Eve attack that can steal numerical passwords over Wi-Fi. So this can steal like a, like numerical pins with an accuracy rate of up to 90%. It exploits, it exploits the beamforming feedback information or BFI feature, which was introduced with Wi-Fi 5 back in 2013, so 802.11ac, which most of us are probably using by now. Some might even be on 6. It allows devices to send feedback about the position of the uh, about where the device is in position to the router, so the router can direct the signal more accurately. The problem is that the information exchanged. Uh, yeah, the information exchange contains data in clear text form, meaning that this data can be intercepted and readily used without requiring hardware hacking or cracking an encryption key. The team found that it's reasonably easy to identify numeric keystrokes 90% of the time, decipher six-digit numerical passwords with an accuracy of 85%, and work out complex app passwords at an accuracy of roughly, roughly 66%. While this attack only works on numerical passwords, a study from NordPass showed that 16 out of 20 of the top passwords only use digits. And that's probably especially true on mobile, where, you know, everything is probably a pin instead of an actual password. WikiEve is designed to intercept the signals during password entry, so it is a real-time attack. It has to be carried out while the target is actively using their smartphone and attempting to unlock whatever application. Um, the attacker must identify the target using an identity indicator on the network, such as a MAC address. So again, some prep work has to go into this. It's not like somebody's just gonna, you know, intercept your password that you put in three weeks ago. You know, they have to know who you are, target you specifically, be on the same network, and you have to be typing in the password. Like I said, I think the likelihood for most people is probably already pretty low, but that said, they are still saying like, you know, we need better security in Wi-Fi access points and smartphone apps. For example, keyboard randomization. I know I, I mentioned last time I recorded this that uh, I know Samurai Wallet, which is a Bitcoin wallet, they do that where it's not, the keyboard isn't always like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It shuffles everything around. So every time you open it, your fingers are moving in a different pattern. Um, encrypting the data traffic, so maybe like a VPN could help here, possibly, if it's on your device. Signal obfuscation, CSI scrambling, and Wi-Fi channel scrambling. There is a new Israeli cyber firm that has developed an, quote, insane new spyware tool, which no defense exists for. This is a super long article, and again, we're trying to keep things quick, so check it out if you want more information, which I do recommend for this one, because it's a fun one. But the basic gist of it is that the author asserts uh, that the spyware companies, such as NSO, have created exploits in the advertising stack. Basically, they can abuse ads to plant zero-click malware. The article claims there is no defense, but it does seem like it's through serving up malicious ads, except with the possibility of a zero-click. So, um... There is no explicit mention of ad blockers, but both of us seem to be under the impression that if you're using an ad blocker, it might be effective towards this, but we don't know yet. So uh, definitely something to keep in mind. And they do say that Google, Meta, and Apple have not introduced any sort of safeguards for something like this. Another uh, interesting proof of concept, this one comes from University of California in Santa Barbara. It is called, God, I can't pronounce this word to save my life, Wifract. Um, and it's basically a way to image objects beyond the line of sight, such as through walls. The technique leverages the interaction of Wi-Fi radio frequency signals with the edges of objects that need to be imaged, guided by the principles of geometric diffraction theory, which is way above my level and I'm not that smart. Uh, with the appropriate mathematical model, Wifract can produce remarkable outcomes such as reading shapes and letters through walls. It's like, it's it's those big block letters that you buy at like the store and you like mount to the wall. It's not like somebody writing in Sharpie. So 
Um, but still, like, yeah, they can see through walls and they can see shapes. This came from the article. I was happy to see them call this out. The UC Santa Barbara team is avoiding any discussion about the privacy implications. A technology that can read through walls could raise serious security concerns, potentially providing cybercriminals a new tool to compromise home privacy from a distance. Law enforcement agencies might also potentially use this technique, hopefully for legitimate purposes. This setup was very complex, uh, very specialized. Again, this is not going to be one of those things, at least at this point in time, that just some random person driving down your street is going to like spy through your house and see everything you're doing. But we still like to mention these things because number one, they're interesting. They're just worth knowing about. They're good, I guess, thought experiments. And unfortunately, not all of them, but some of these attacks do end up eventually scaling and becoming a lot more economic and feasible for, you know, the average run-of-the-mill script kitty. So... Um, just kind of worth knowing about, I guess. GPUs from all major suppliers are vulnerable to a new pixel-stealing attack. Uh, so this new attack allows malicious websites to read the usernames, passwords, and other sensitive visual data displayed by other websites. The cross-origin attack allows a malicious website from one domain, say example.com, to effectively read the pixels displayed by a website from example.org on a different domain. Attackers can then reconstruct them in a way that allows them to view the words or images displayed by the latter site. This leakage violates a critical security principle that forms one of the most fundamental security boundaries safeguarding the internet. Known as the same origin policy, it mandates that content posted on one website domain be isolated from all other website domains. GPU.zip works only when the malicious attacker website is loaded into Chrome or Edge. The reason for the attack to work, the browser must allow cross-origin iframes to be loaded with cookies, allow rendering SVG filters on iframes, and delegate rendering tasks to the GPU. So in other words, if your browser blocks cross-site origin iframes, then you're fine. Someone should confirm. Uh, these are two tests on privacytests.org. Uh, one of them is first party and one is third party cross-session tracking tests. And one is iframe, uh, they're both iframe cache, but one is first party, one's third party. First party, the only three browsers that protect against this are LibreWolf, Mulvad browser, and Tor. And then it's uh, the same uh, list over in third party as well. LibreWolf, Mulvad, and Tor. But again, that's assuming that that's actually the relevant data point. So if someone uh, could help us confirm that, that would be very nice. And that's also, you know, people should always be aware that website is uh, their default configuration. So Fire, like vanilla Firefox might have something in the settings that allows you to harden that potentially. Um, with that, we'll roll into politics. Customs and Border Patrol says it will stop buying smartphone location data. For many years, CBP, like many other law enforcement agencies, has bought access to location data harvested from smartphones, which one former location data company worker previously told us is useful for tracking, quote, herds of people. Another previously said it can be used to monitor specific targets. Since the agencies paid a commercial vendor for the data, the agencies have generally not acquired a warrant or other court order to obtain the information, a move that critics say skirts the Fourth Amendment. CBP told 404 Media it determined the agency does not have a current need to buy more access to such data. Lawmakers and campaigners who have pushed back against CBP and other agencies' purpose purchases of location data were welcoming the news while demanding more protections against data use in the future. So this came from Senator Ron Wyden's office. He said, while it's good news that CBP is ending its purchase of Americans' location data information, it's troubling that the agency still hasn't released the Trump-era DHS legal memo that provided them with the authority to engage in such warrantless surveillance in the first place. The last thing that I thought was interesting, the author said, in one case, I found CBP paid almost half a million dollars for $176,000 to a location data firm called Ventel in August 2020. And that was one single case. So yeah, not to be too political, but they're like, 
they're finding a loophole in the Constitution, and then they're wasting taxpayer money to do it. Elon Musk may have violated an FTC privacy order, according to a new court filing. So the company agreed to implement a number of security safeguards and privacy audits in May of 2022 to settle allegations that it deceptively collected users' data. In December, Musk directed that company servers be moved from one data center to another, and company policy was to wipe data before removing servers from a center, but the relocated servers were transferred without being wiped because employees did not have enough time to put together a process that would be in compliance with their own policies, according to the testimony. The FTC redacted a description of what was on the servers, which were moved from Sacramento, but they contained sensitive personal data that had not been fully encrypted, and some electronic storage from the same unit was disregarded without such data being wiped clean. Uh, Musk also directed employees to launch paid verification service Twitter Blue so quickly that a security and privacy review was not conducted as required by the company's own policies. Uh, this is according to a deposition cited in the filing from a former chief privacy officer, Damien Kiaran. Uh, Musk's cutting measures, which included five rounds of layoffs between October and December of last year, impaired the company from complying with data security promises it made to the government in 2022 according to the filing. It quotes Kistner, the company's former chief information security officer, as testifying that due to the employee exodus, about half of the controls in the company's security program no longer had a specific owner responsible for their operation. Uh, Kieran testified similarly about the company's privacy program controls, telling the FTC that 37% were left unsupervised. Okay, this next story is a pretty quick one. It says, with a new commissioner, the FCC will finally try to reinstate net neutrality. So now the new chairwoman, uh, I'm going to totally mess up this name, Jessica Rose Rosenworcel, I guess. Um, she announced that, you know what, this is going to be one of our things we're going to try and do is we're going to try and reinstate net neutrality. If agreed, the commission would vote on October 19th whether to begin the rulemaking process. Uh, this includes a period of public comment before the chairwoman can make a final decision whether to bring the matter to a full vote. And this is not in the article, but it will probably be bombed by spam bots like it was last time made by the ISPs. That is a fact. That happened. I'm going to keep this one quick. So Google has settled with California for $93 million over a location privacy allegation. Pretty much uh, they accused the giant of deceiving users about how they use location data. And this was based on how they were doing things a few years ago. Google has, has changed how they do things, but they still had to settle for this prior issue. Uh, if you want to read more about the details uh, down in the show notes. But yeah, uh, Google did have to deal with this settlement. So some good news out of California. California lawmakers passed a bill to make it easier to delete online personal data. So this is what's known as the Delete Act, and it would allow consumers with a single request to have every data broker delete their personal information, which uh, I believe the article says there's roughly 500 data brokers registered in California alone. So... Big news. Under this bill, by January 2026, the California Privacy Protection Agency would have to create a way for consumers to request that their rec records be deleted through a single request. Currently, it's not always clear what information the consumer data companies have or share. Uh, they might also de deny deletion requests or not respond. A court has blocked California's online child safety law. This is the CADCA, which the judge has blocked on the grounds that it violates the First Amendment. They recognize that the law would require outlets to collect additional data about visitors like biometrics. And this is what we talk about all the time, too. Um, we can't have an easy way to uh, KYC the entire internet without opening up a whole new privacy issue. So the law offers sites an alternative of making data collection for all users follow the standards for minors. But the judge found that this would also uh, chill legal speech since part of the law's goal is to avoid targeted advertising that would show objectionable content to children. Data and privacy protections intended to shield children from harmful content, if applied to adults, will also shield adults from that same content. 
TikTok is being fined 379 million euros, uh, million dollars in the EU for failing to keep kids' data safe. Um, this came from the Irish Data Protection Commission. They have also been ordered to bring their offending data practices into compliance within three months. In all, TikTok has been found to have violated the following eight articles of the GDPR. I'm not actually going to read those, but they are in the show notes if, in the article if you want to read it. Um, TikTok says here, we respectfully disagree with the decision, particularly the level of fine imposed. The criticisms are focused on features and settings that were in place years ago and that we have made changes to well before the investigation even began, such as setting all accounts under 16 to private by default. And TikTok is also considering next steps, so they could seek to file for a legal appeal. Google's ad tech targeted by Dutch class action style privacy damages suit. Uh, this is from the Netherlands, which accuses the ad tech giant of breaching European privacy laws, demanding Google stops tracking and profiling consumers, and is also seeking compensation for what it dubs large-scale privacy violations of the EU's data protection regime. The representative action, which has been filed with the Amsterdam District Court, is being brought by two not-for-profits, the Foundation for the Protection of Privacy Interests and the Dutch Consumers Association. More than 82,000 consumers have signed up to join the claim since it was announced back in May per the pair. The no-win-no-fee suit is still open to signups, so registration is offered via the claim website. Consumers who have used Google products or services at any time after March 1st, 2012 and lived in the Netherlands can join the mass action. So if you're listening uh, from the Netherlands right now and you want to get in on this, uh, definitely check out the show notes. All right, our next story also comes from the Netherlands. It says the tax office scrapes social media for database info. They have been gathering data, including their social media messaging, despite concerns about the legality of the process, and this is according to the NRC. The information is stored on the department's controversial RAM database, which the article didn't go into detail what that is, but I'm assuming if you li live in the Netherlands, you're might have heard of this. The system was used until recently to make profiles of potential fraudsters in which nationality, family relationships, property ownership, and debt also plays a role. Built by the tax office itself, the system was used to identify addresses considered worthy of further investigation because of unusual patterns or uh, unusual behavioral patterns or a large number of registered residents. As yet, it is unclear who had access to the information, but according to the NRC, at least 2,000 people may have done so. Poland has opened a privacy probe of ChatGPT following GDPR complaint. They're pretty much accusing the company of a string of breaches in the EU's GDPR. The Polish authority took the unusual step of making a public announcement to confirm it has opened an investigation. Uh, they're investigating a complaint about ChatGPT in which the complaint accuses the tool's creator, OpenAI, of, among other things, processing data in an unlawful, unreliable manner, and the rules under which this is done are opaque, the UODO wrote in a press release. So uh, that is unfolding over in Poland. Okay, so this next story is uh, good news out of Australia. It says government to overhaul privacy laws, including opting out of advertising, a right to be forgotten, and new rules for small businesses. This is just kind of the highlights. The government says companies should be required to obtain informed consent when asking people to agree to the privacy policy, meaning companies won't be able to just throw up a wall of legalistic text that their users typically ignore. New rules will also govern how companies present their privacy policies to you, aiming to limit dark patterns by requiring companies to officer offer privacy by default. The government also agrees in principle that people should have an un, quote unquote unqualified right to opt out of their personal information being used for direct marketing. Where companies do targeted advertising, the government says it should be fair and reasonable and that using sensitive information to target users should be prohibited, except where it's quote unquote socially beneficial. Love that loophole. Uh, additional protections for children have been agreed to subject to consultation, including prohibiting any direct marketing to people under 18, unless the personal information used was collected directly from the child and is quote in the child's best interests. 
And following data breaches like at Optus, where Australians who had not even been customers for years had data stolen in massive breaches, there will be now new obligations on companies to destroy data after a reasonable period of time. Go ahead and check out the article. That's some really good news coming for Australia. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to take this last political story here because uh, it's kind of a lot, but I remember this was one of the ones from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the headline says, The Twisted Eye in the Sky over Buenos Aires. Uh, so the article starts off with the story of this guy named Guillermo uh, God, I remember I screwed this guy's name up. I Ibarola, who is a single father who was detained for six days in solitary confinement because facial recognition wrongly identified him as an armed robbery suspect, which carries up to 15 years in prison in that country. Here's the fun part. That was because someone wrongly entered his ID number into the system instead of the actual Guillermo Ibarola who, who did the crime. So like they knew who the guy was, they had his information, and they put in the wrong person to tell the system to look out for this guy. So he got flagged, he got picked up, he got kept in solitary confinement before they were like, whoops, wrong guy, sorry. I just, I always have to point out, there's literally a whole movie about this. It's called Brazil, great movie. And then I'm gonna quote some stuff from the article here. It's kind of a lot, but it's really important, so bear with me. 75% of the Argentine capital area is under video surveillance, which the government proudly advertises on billboards. But the facial surveillance system is being criticized after at least 140 other database errors led to police checks or arrests since the system went live in 2019 and before it was shut down with the COVID-19 lockdown in March of 2020. So in one year, 140 errors. Iberola's arrest was one of the first. Activists decided to sue the city government and scored a first success. In April 2022, a judge decided to keep the system turned off. Since then, the city has been fighting to get it back in use. It's not clear yet who will win. Uh, by law, it may only be used to look for people who have who have an arrest warrant against them, aka, aka Argentina's most wanted. This list is supposedly updated on a daily basis. Only Argentina's around 40,000 fugitives from justice may be searched for within the system, according to one person, but the number of personal data requests for the city was almost 10 million. The government could never explain why so much data was requested that did not belong to fugitives. Among the data requested, by the way, again, only supposed to be used for fugitives, right? The personal data for Argentina's vice president was requested 226 times. The president himself was requested 76 times. And there were also politicians from different parties, human rights activists, and journalists. Despite repeated assurances that there was oversight and accountability for the system to only be used on known criminals, the IT experts report says that 15,459 records were found in the facial recognition system that are not in the national database of individuals wanted for serious crimes. In other words, over 15,000 persons were loaded into the facial recognition system without a quest from a judge. The forensic audit also found traces of 356 manual data deletions, including the associated log files, meaning it's impossible to know who was affected because someone, whoever it was, made a major effort to delete not only the data, but also the traces of the deletion. Even worse, the identity of the persons who deleted the data in the log files is unknown because several user profiles are not linked to the registration data of real persons and cannot be associated with a specific and determined physical person according to the audit so basically there's users who can delete the database delete the logs of the deletion and we don't even know who those users are because they're not linked to anybody they're just random admin users it adds that 17 users have administrative privileges and at least six of the accounts aren't linked to real identities so again there's no way to trace back who did it there's kind of a lot there but i recommend you guys read it it's a long article but it's very enlightening and very unfortunate of what's going on down in South America with surveillance tech. That actually ended the politics section. And now we're gonna go into FOSS free and open source. And we're gonna start with quantum resistance and the signal protocol, the protocol used in the signal messenger as well as uh, many other places. Um, they're pretty much announcing this first step in advancing quantum resistance for the signal protocol, an upgrade to the X3DH specification, which they're calling PQXDH. 
With the upgrade, they're adding a layer of protection against the threat of a quantum computer being built in the future that is powerful enough to break uh, current encryption standards. This post is written to introduce this work to non-experts and will review what quantum computing is and the challenges it presents for current cryptographic algorithms before providing a high-level overview of how they're adopting their specs to answer those challenges. Um, so I would really read the whole thing if you really want to get the whole technical white paper uh, or just a summary of it or just uh, whatever you want. Like, depending on how much information you want, uh, the article has it. I think all new conversations on Signal uh, will actually utilize this. Uh, so there's no way to upgrade current conversations yet. But down the road, uh, I think everything will be auto-migrated somehow. So we'll see how that goes down. Actually, most of the FOSS stories are pretty quick this week. So the next two are from Mulvad, and I'm just going to kind of roll them into one. The first one says, Mulvad, we, uh, we have successfully completed our migration to RAM-only VPN infrastructure. The title really says it all. So in the past, they were experimenting with um, having RAM-only VPNs. So basically, there's like no way to log. As soon as the server gets disconnected, like if, if um, law enforcement tries to seize the server or whatever, it's just going to like it's just going to wipe it because everything's in the RAM. There's nothing actually being stored on the server itself. Um, so that is now across all of their servers. No matter what server you use with Mulvad, it's going to be RAM only. And then number two, this is an update. It says Mac OS 14 Sonoma firewall bug fixed. So uh, when Sonoma first launched, apparently there was like a bug with the firewall and the Mulvad VPN app wasn't quite working the way it was supposed to. That should now be resolved. So if you're a Mac Sonoma user and you want to use Mulvad or you've been using Mulvad and you've had to find something else for the time being, that should now be resolved. So iVPN is also up and they launched something called iVPN Lite, which is a short-term VPN access paid with Bitcoin Lightning. This is pretty much a short duration throwaway VPN tunnel for three hours uh, up to 30 days. So between that time period, it's as little as 500 sats for three hours, up to five locations or one entry exit node multi-hop. No account is required. It requires WireGuard or CLI, no applications, only available via Bitcoin Lightning and there's no subscription for this offering. Uh, next up, we have Bitwarden. Bitwarden is now offering FIDO2 web authentication 2FA in all Bitwarden plans, including free. So basically, if you're a Bitwarden user and you don't want to pay for the premium account because you just don't really have a use for it, um, you can now use a YubiKey, which is great because you know when you're putting all your stuff in a password manager, you're putting a lot of trust in that vault. And a YubiKey is one of the best ways to secure your vault from uh, phishing and, and hacking. So uh, yeah. If you're a Bitwarden user, I definitely recommend securing it with a hardware token if you can. Up next, Addy.io, which is a rebrand of Anon Addy, has passed an independent security audit. Uh, they found no significant vulnerabilities. They did find two low-risk vulnerabilities, and those were fixed, as well as several information points that were found as well. So good stuff. Uh, for Addy.io. Next up, we have Matrix, who has announced Matrix 2.0. This is a series of huge step changes in terms of Matrix usability and performance. It is made up of sliding sync, instant login slash launch slash sync, native OIDC, which is industry standard authentication, native group VoIP, end-to-end -end encrypted large-scale voice and video conferencing, and faster joins, uh, lazy loading room state when your server joins a room. Now we're excited to announce that as of today, everyone can start playing with these features. There's still some work to bring them formally into specification, but we're putting it out there for folks to experience right now. Um, the article goes into more detail about each of these different features, how they implement it, what it does, why they're using it, etc. And the big thing, I've actually heard people talking about this for a while now. There's a new Matrix client. Um, it's only available in the official app stores like Apple App Store, Google Play. Um, 
It's called Element X. Some people like it. You know, some people like the minimalism of it. Um, some people don't. I don't know. It's it's there if you guys like it. If you don't like Element for whatever reason, but you like Matrix and you want to, maybe you haven't found a client that you do like, maybe check out Element X, see if it's to your liking. But yeah, and then at the very bottom of the article, of course, they have a list of like, here's some more things we're hoping to add in the near future. And if you've written off Matrix entirely, maybe check this out and see if they're going in a direction that might interest you. Threema for iOS. You can now chat on the computer without a connection to the smartphone. This is the next generation of the desktop app and it was redesigned from the ground up and it doesn't just sport a completely refreshed and modern UI, but it also features multiple device support even when your smartphone is turned off or not connected to the internet. Um, kind of like I believe how Signal works. So it's kind of cool how they're able to match that functionality. This is currently in beta and only available for iOS users. Android development is underway. It's pretty unfortunate, but hopefully that comes out soon. Um, a quick ad from the article, Threema now lets you also pay in cash. You can buy a license and mail them cash. So that's something else. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not a Threema user, but if I was, this would be exciting stuff. This next one's quick. It says introducing Proton Captcha. Uh, TLDR, too long, didn't read for those who don't know. Uh, Proton has built their own Captcha service. They weren't happy with any of the existing offerings and wanted to create one that they felt offered a perfect blend of security, privacy, and usability slash accessibility. The blog post, of course, explains the different facets of the service and how they feel they have achieved this. They've also said that they are considering opening it up to third-party use in the future, which personally I would be cool with. I, I love having more options, especially privacy-focused ones. If you've also noticed that or you're curious about it, feel free to check out the blog post and see how they implemented that. Tudanota has introduced a family option which requires a revolutionary or legendary plan, includes 20 to 500 gigabytes of storage, or 20 or 500 gigabytes of storage, 15 or 30 email addresses, sharing calendars and invites, three or 10 custom domains, unlimited aliases on those domains, contact lists, shared mailboxes, and an autoresponder. If you're curious why I was saying or, that depends if you're on revolutionary or legendary. So um, good stuff. And Tudanota is pushing things forward. I'm gonna go ahead and roll these last three into one because they're really quick. They're all just new releases from some projects. Cryptomator 1.10 has proper tray menu support on Linux, Arch 64 build for app images, improved error dialogue, refreshed macOS app icon, and expert settings during vault creation. So if you're a Cryptomator user and any of that sounds appealing to you, go check that out. Uh, the NT Authenticator version two is out. Um, this one actually has a lot of cool upgrades. There's an offline mode, so you don't need to create an account anymore if you don't want to. Uh, you can import your data from other password managers like Aegis or Rivo. You can encrypt your exported data as a backup. They have a web app, finally, so you can use a web vault. They've added icons for the different websites. They've added some language translations and the ability to log in without verifying your email. They've added autofill. They've added a QR code to share seeds. They've added search and a few other small things. So yeah, huge, huge upgrade. Um, if you're one of the Rivo uh, refugees, NT now sounds like a pretty powerful alternative. And last but not least, Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 is now available for public beta testing. So I believe this is Linux Mint's first edition that is based on Debian 12. And currently it is only available with the Cinnamon desktop environment. It contains all the changes of Linux Mint 21.2 Cinnamon, and it appears to use Pipewire as the default audio backend. Other than that, you'll get a solid Debian base, all of the goodies from the Cinnamon 5.8 desktop, improved support for flat packs, and a global dark mode setting to support GTK4 slash libadvita apps. Um, there's more details in the article, so if you're curious, definitely check that out. And uh, the author noted, definitely treat it as a beta, like it's it's still very early in development, but you know, 
it's out there. Now we're gonna go into the misfits. Google has quietly corrected previously submitted disclosure for critical WebP zero days. So the vulnerability originates in the libwebp code library, which Google created in 2010 for rendering images in WebP, the then new format that resulted in files that were up to 26% smaller than PNG. LibWebP is incorporated into just about every app, operating system, or other code library that renders WebP images, most notably the Electron framework used in Chrome and many other applications that run on both desktop and mobile. Two weeks ago, Google issued a security advisory for what it said was a heap buffer overflow in WebP in Chrome. Google's formal description, tracked as CVE 2023-4863, scoped the affected vendor as Google and the software affected as Chrome, even though any code that used libwebp was vulnerable. Critics warned that Google's failure to note that thousands of other pieces of code were also vulnerable would result in unnecessary delays in patching the vulnerability, which allows attackers to execute malicious code when users do nothing more than view a booby-trapped WebP image. On Monday, Google submitted a new disclosure that tracked as CVE 2023-5129. This new entry correctly lists uh, LibWebP as the affected vendor and affected software. It also bumps up the severity rating from 8.8 .8 to 10 out of 10. So yeah, uh, this is something used in a ton of different things, and now we're hopefully going to see other places fix this vulnerability as well. This one's pretty quick. WordPress blogs can now be followed in the Fediverse, including Mastodon. So in March, WordPress.com owner Automatic made a commitment to the Fediverse uh, with the acquisition of an ActivityPub plugin that allowed WordPress blogs to reach readers on other federated platforms. Now the company is a announcing ActivityPub 1.0.0 for WordPress has been released, allowing WordPress blogs to be followed by other apps like Mastodon and others in the Fediverse and then receive replies back as comments on their own sites. At the time of the acquisition, the plugin supported federated platforms included Mastodon, Pleroma, Friendica, Hubzilla, PixelFed, Social Home, and MissKey. At the time, it had been downloaded 35,000 times. Now that number has increased, and it shows all-time installations are at 42,000, almost 43. Uh, currently only supported on self-hosted blogs, so like WordPress.org, I think but um, all the other like software as a service blogs should be coming soon. And the last article of the week, we made it. Uh, the end of privacy is a Taylor Swift fan TikTok account armed with facial recognition technology. So this is a viral TikTok account that is doxing ordinary and otherwise anonymous people on the internet using off-the-shelf facial recognition tech, creating content and growing a following by taking advantage of the fundamental new truth. Privacy is now essentially dead in public spaces. So this 90,000 followers strong account picks targets who appeared in other viral videos or people suggested to the account in the comments. Many of the account's videos show the process, which includes screenshotting the video of the target, cropping images of the face, running those photos through facial recognition software, and then revealing the person's full name, social media profile, and sometimes employer to millions of people who have liked the videos. There's an entire branch of content on TikTok in which creators show off their uh, open source intelligence doxing skills. Um, the vast majority of them do it with the explicit consent of the target. This account is doing the same without the consent of the people they choose to dox. 404 Media is not naming the account because TikTok has decided to not remove them from the platform. TikTok told uh, the person who wrote this article that the account does not violate its policies. One social media policy expert that they spoke to said TikTok should reevaluate that position. So concerning, but also um, uh, my hot take is uh, anyone can be doing this. And if anything, this is kind of a neat uh, proof of concept. Whether or not it belongs on TikTok, I think is a different discussion, but um, they're using pretty accessible tools that anyone can use. These probably aren't anything sophisticated. And so uh, this should give you an insight 
this should give you some insight into how powerful some things law enforcement might have access to and governments and things like that. So this stuff is definitely uh, not anything to play with. And it's why we're constantly here uh, complaining about facial recognition software. Well, one of the many reasons, actually, um, but the lack of uh, oversight and, uh, I guess, control over this issue is a big one. All right, and that was it for this big week. Thank you all for being so patient with us. Um, hopefully we're back on a somewhat normal schedule again, um, but pretty much uh, just to recap things, there was that clever Linux malware distribution scheme that went undetected for years, vulnerabilities in Proton, Tutanota, and Skiff, lots of new passkey support, and a lot more. Um, we actually never did the promo segment at the beginning, so everyone got at least half of what their VIP experience could be like. Uh, so now uh, you are going to get the promo segment. So again, uh, we can't really do this without people on Patreon, uh, without people on LibraPay, and without people who send us directly Monero. So uh, thank you all for keeping us going and keeping this podcast growing. We're seeing our numbers go up pretty much every week, uh, thanks to people like yourselves who allow us to do this podcast for free. So thank you all very much. Um, and a final thing I'm going to say is to share our podcast around, make sure you're subscribed and give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option. Um, we want to reach as many people as possible. So the best two ways to do that are to share the podcast uh, and also contribute and support the podcast if you're able to. And both of those things can be done down in the description. And we'll hopefully see you next week.